what we need are systems across the country, across the globe, actually, of this kind of political and economic localization, where people are able to take control over their ecosystems, their natural resources, their knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, their technologies, also invite knowledge and technologies from outside if they think that what they have is not enough, but in on their own terms, right? not being dominated from outside. And so the political decision-making and the economic decision-making is at that local level. It is not with private corporations, nor is it actually even with the nation state. That is the kind of what we call radical ecological democracy. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week, I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political, and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Ashish Kothari. Ashish is an Indian environmentalist working on development, environment interface, biodiversity and alternatives. He's one of the founders of Kalpavriksh, a non-profit organization in India which deals with environmental and development issues. And he also organizes both the confluence of alternatives and the global tapestry of alternatives, projects which bring together imaginations from people all around India and around the world to imagine and strategize alternative ways of being, alternative politics, alternative environmental policies, economic systems, food systems that will better benefit both people and planet. On this episode, Ashish explains the reality of development and the obsession with economic growth, explaining how Indians are displaced from their land in the name of development, that it is not synonymous with lifting people out of poverty, and emphasizes the necessity of a heterogeneous perspective on what a good life looks like explaining that some people, for example, in India, may have better well-being as a pastoral or agricultural worker than as someone suffering in the cities thick with air pollution. He talks about the history of colonialism and its impact on the economic policies that have driven the materials rush and economic growth obsession and twisted the arm of most countries into the global financial system that the West exported. However, he also explains that there has to be an elite class in every country, including those in the global south, that are willing to import that same financial system. And so he talks about how the inequalities are not just global south versus global north, but much more nuanced, and how the elites in every country are actually playing by a very similar playbook to extract from their population and their environment in order to enrich themselves. He explains how he expects the next 10 years of environmental politics to play out in India before discussing the people's movements, which he say gives so much hope to a better future, explaining how these movements and people are imagining a different India, a transformed India, a healthy India that deeply respects the earth, embedded in a world which celebrates the diversity of its cultures, its peoples and its lands. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. 
I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. So you have had a very illustrious career um, in across environmentalism and social progress and social change. Um, could you give a brief background for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have been working on broadly on environmental issues now for uh, more than four decades. We started a non a nonprofit organization called Kalpavriksh back in 1979 when some of us were in high school or college, and I still work with the same organization. But uh, along with that, we uh, I've also been working with a number of networks. We have a national network called Vikalp Sangam or the Confluence of Alternatives, and a global one called the Global Tapestry of Alternatives. Uh, apart from which, I've also been on the boards of uh, Greenpeace International, Greenpeace India, and a number of other organizations, and guest faculty in some universities. Uh, mostly, my focus in the last few decades has been looking at the conflicts between environment livelihoods and what is called development or economic growth. Um, and then in the last few years, looking at what are the radical alternatives to that kind of uh, unsustainable, destructive process of uh, development and growth. Uh, and before that, for many, for two decades, three decades, actually also looking at biodiversity conservation policies uh, in relation to human rights and livelihoods. Yeah. Mm. Could you speak to that conflict between, what was the term that you used, environmental livelihoods environment, and development, development and or economic yeah. growth? So, I think, I mean, across the world, and certainly in India, what we see, what comes in the name of development, which is highly focused on, almost like a religion focused on economic growth at all costs, it uh, comes with, um, you know, very high levels of very large scale infrastructure, industrialization, urbanization, increasing consumerism, and so on. And uh, this is, um, you know, very obviously on the ground, what we see is that there's a huge amount of ecological damage that it entails in terms of the use of land, forests, water, uh, natural resources, and then dumping back of waste into the same ecosystems, etc. Uh, but also at a very high cost to communities who are most dependent on natural ecosystems for their livelihoods. In India, typically something like 60 to 65% of the population is still directly dependent on land and forests and coastal areas and water and so on for their uh, daily livelihoods, their survival, their food, um, and their cultural sustenance and so on. So in that sense, it's a twin impact when development, uh, for instance, you take away a forest for a mining project or a big dam, it is an impact on the environment and the wildlife in that area, but also on the people who depend on that area. So. Uh, this is a it's a very old conflict again it's global but in india we've seen that more and more just to give you one figure uh, so-called development projects have displaced something like 60 million people in india which means physically uprooted them from their lands and their homes and asked them to go somewhere else now uh, that's a massive population and and most of them have never been properly uh, resettled or rehabilitated uh, somewhere else so it's a um, it like 60 million, million. <laughs> that's a awesome wow. figure yeah bigger than that's the population of most countries yeah um yeah. yeah 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 and of course nobody can quantify the loss of 
wildlife and biodiversity but that's also very obviously very serious mm-hmm. let's let's pick apart that word development then um because i think typically it's thrown around in the west um as a signifier for lifting people out of poverty you know if we if a nation develops or if it becomes or if it is developing um but obviously if 60 million people are being displaced and not rehomed then development is something else no absolutely actually for the last few decades we've been saying it's not development it's destruction and one has to actually go back to mm-hmm. the you know if you look at the original meanings of the word development itself it uh, arose probably in the biological field so you you know you talk about the development of a seed into a sapling into a plant into a tree or a human embryo into a baby into an adult right so those are sort of where it probably originated but then as it got uh, transferred to the economic field post world war 2 especially um it uh, got restricted to uh, this the sole notion of more and more material and energy uh, use uh, economic growth based on more and more energy and material use uh without considering the fact that we we have a finite planet we have finite natural resources and nature to depend on you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet as uh, somebody famously said uh, a long time back um but that's the sort of uh, ideology of development that has been exported from the west all across the world and all countries use gdp or economic growth rates as their indicator of how developed or how much they are developing even the notion of developing underdeveloped developing and developed is a western notion it, it is based on this unilinear kind of a, a progression uh, between being from being let's say primarily agricultural and pastoral and so on to industrial and then now to post industrial digital age kind of thing which assumes that that is how all countries need to uh, to progress in order to develop right mm-hmm. but what we see actually is mm-hmm. the reality on the ground is much more nuanced and complex um there is no reason absolutely to think that uh, for instance a pastoral livelihood or an agricultural livelihood is less uh is less able to provide well-being than an industrial or a post-industrial one okay in fact in some cases it would be better because if you live if you happen to live in india's uh, one of india's biggest cities new delhi the capital and uh, you are one of the million people affected by its air pollution uh, which has been caused by the same process of development you might actually wonder whether living out uh, in a rural area as a farmer or a pastoralist assuming you have access to basic mm-hmm. needs might be better for you in terms of health right um you might be even getting better quality mm-hmm. food than what than what you're getting from the markets in new delhi so i'm not necessarily therefore saying uh, that one is, it's not a black and white situation uh, but just to indicate that the quality the qualitative indicators of what we think of development um are completely missing from the picture you know fresh air for instance good quality food uh, access to learning uh, good learning opportunities not just a mechanical school kind of thing but a good learning opportunity access to decision making forums uh, good health good social relationships um, having the ability to be out in nature right now if you think of this as mm-hmm. what gives meaning to life not just money huh, or income then we realize that gdp and economic growth which is the fulcrum of today's model of development is actually pretty nonsensical it does not necessarily in any mm-hmm. way mean well being 
The second issue, of course, what we note also mm-hmm. in countries like India and elsewhere is that even if economic growth rates are rising, that doesn't necessarily mean that the majority of population are also benefiting, even in terms of income, because it could be that 5% or 10% of the population is becoming richer and richer and richer. And so on an average, that country mm-hmm. is in fact rising in economic terms. But the remaining 90%, 95% of the population might still be as badly off and sometimes even worse because their access to, for instance, free drinking water from a river is no longer possible because an industry has been built upstream and it's polluting the river and that the benefits of that industry are going to that 5% or 10%. So so this twin thing of uh, the quality of life and then the inequalities that are uh, inherent in these models of development are, I think, what what make us kind of question this very fundamentally and ask this question, is it really development? Or going beyond that, saying, okay, if this is what development is, then we need not just alternative development or sustainable development, but alternatives to development. We need processes of well-being which provide for human needs and aspirations without causing these sorts of problems that we're seeing across the globe. I haven't even mentioned climate, yet, but you know, we're mm-hmm. all familiar with with that as a crisis, right? which is again engendered by the same mm-hmm. processes of economic growth. <laughs> economic growth. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. Um, and perhaps you can shine some light. Uh, the question that I want to ask is, where do you think this push for development has come from? This exporting of um, Western financial culture to the entire world, which has rendered it homogenous. What is driving that, do you think? Well, I mean, people have kind of traced both the word and the concept and the practice uh, that, that goes behind it um, back to the post-World War II um, need for the United States and Europe to redesign their economies, to revive their economies after the kind of, uh, you know, the uh, impacts that they had because of the war. Um, and uh, they hit upon this brilliant idea that um, we need uh, to have material and energy growth or development. The word itself comes up at that time. I think it was President Truman or one of those presidents post-World War II who famously kind of came up with this thing that uh, in order for us to be able to revive our economies, we need to export this idea all over, all over the world. And uh, and and uh, he didn't say it uh, in so many words, but it was very obvious, and there are documentation to that effect, that um, there was very clearly advice that if you can do that, you would then actually make the rest of the world dependent on you, as in the United States and just to a lesser extent Europe, uh, for uh, where you could get your raw materials from. So earlier it was done through colonial means. Now that colonialism was gone to, to a large extent, you couldn't do it through the same means that, the, say, you know, the colonial countries did earlier for 500 years. But then you could do it through this by actually persuading the whole world that development means moving from this X to Y to Z in this form and that we are the best advisor for, advisors for how to do that. So then you also get in get the Bretton Woods uh, institutions, the World Bank, IMF, etc., who then become the experts of what is development and then tell the whole world that this is what you need to do. And essentially, if you look at it in the last few decades, the relationship has been one of raw materials from countries like the global south in the global south being exported to the industrializing west now it's beginning to change where the industrializing west because of ecological movements or social movements don't want the same industries there so they have 
re, uh, relocated the industries to the global south, but essentially the relationship is still very much the same in terms of who's profiting and uh, and who's not. And the only other change that's happened in recent times is that countries like China and India have uh, joined the bandwagon in a big way, uh, but are basically following the same patterns. And so they are also, in some sense, mm. becoming, uh, you know, neoliberal or, and and uh, even imperial. I would imperialist. I would say, in terms of their relations with even weaker countries like Africa, in Africa, Latin America. Mm. Sorry, before we get into that, there's just a, a quick point I want to um, pull up, which is. I don't think that the West sort of exported its manufacturing capacity to China because of the climate, because of the environmental movement, um, but rather because that was the easiest way to maximize profits, um, laxer labor laws in the global south, um, currencies which aren't as powerful as the reserve currency. Um, and now we're seeing obviously Biden trying to renationalize a lot of industry and manufacturing in the United States out of this sort of fear over, well, perhaps the minerals rush. Um, and China's manufacturing capacity vastly outstripping everybody else's. No, you're right. I mean, I think it's a combination because we also see that, for instance, some of the dirtiest mm -hmm. industries started getting relocated uh, even, you know, let's say three, four decades back. Uh, and that was uh, mm -hmm. certainly, for instance, things like pesticides manufacturing uh, was certainly at least partly a result of the growing uh, movements, ecological consumer uh, and social human rights movements uh, in some parts of the West. But you're right. I mean, of course, uh, maybe the bigger reason is the, um, I mean, also the technologies that enable this kind of global chains of production, right, which may ha not have been so easy at that point in time. Mm. But now with the kind of technologies mm. available and mobility that is available, uh, you could be you could be having 40 different places from where the same final product is sourced. Uh, right. If you look at the, you know, the cell phones, for instance, iPhone, typically Apple products, I think, apparently come from 40 different countries. So but but the yeah. global technology mm -hmm. and supply chain enables that to happen and still makes it economically viable for that company. So, yeah, I mean, you're right that that is also a huge okay. part of the push. Um, and also that, you know, if you I mean, okay. and the reason Thank why you. this also happens is because the people taking decisions in countries like China and India have bought into the same ideology. Um, so mm -hmm. it's also sometimes simplistic, therefore, to say uh, north south, north versus south, uh, north versus south, because uh, in the south, and this is why mm -hmm. we use the term global south and global north, because our decision makers in India and China are in that sense also part of the global north. They're in the same ideology. They benefit. They're, they're as rich as many of the Western uh, richest and you know the top billionaires of the world, etc. Now from our country. So. Um, uh, so therefore, I think we need to also then look at it in a much more nuanced manner uh, from uh, in, mm -hmm. in terms of who's driving this. And so because there, were that, there was that ready acceptability in countries like India and China, it was also that much easier for this kind of uh, export of uh, manufacturing uh, cap capacities to happen. And not just that, also export of uh, waste materials. We did, uh, a colleague and I did a book uh, in 2012 called Churning the Earth, the Making of Global India. And we looked at from 1991, which is when India opened up its uh, economy to globalization, to 2012, the rise in the import of toxic waste products um, for recycling mm. from across the globe, including medical waste, electronic waste, etc. 
and it was horrifying i mean there was like a such a quantum jump in the import and also a quantum jump in the export of uh, fishery products minerals and things like that so you could see that in that sense india's economic globalization was building into the same pattern uh, is exactly what the west wanted and also our elites wanted oh fascinating well okay let's talk let's talk about your elites <laughs> let's talk let's talk about the elites in the global south because this is a a narrative that perhaps isn't um, broadcasted loudly enough um and it makes the conversation a little bit uh, stickier i think in terms of you know wanting to find you know good guy versus bad guy is just not that simple um but it adds an important class element to the environmental movement um so i saw this firsthand because of my investigations into logging in malaysia I was, i'm a climate corruption journalist um and i saw how this you know incredible political corruption was facilitating industry corruption so essentially a class of elites of the malaysians are extracting everything from their forests and from their people and exploiting their own people um and just destroy just destroying one of the most precious rainforests uh, that we have left in the world 80% of the bornean uh, rainforest has been logged um and yes they are doing so to sort of uh, play on a global financial market that is definitely uh, an export of western culture but that culture has been allowed to be exported so successfully because there are people willing to import it as you correctly say can you speak to that tension that that class tension between elites um and also perhaps the the narrative of like the, the global south as the victim of the global north's um predatory economic hunger yes of course so um i mean elites have been around i guess forever in all of our countries uh, but um uh, i think earlier what we would see is uh, a certain kind let's say in the feudalism there was a certain kind of elite right uh, what we're seeing now okay let me say that i think in india there are two phases to this right um, the first phase post independence in 1947 is where india as a at least on paper socialist country decides to significantly expand its uh, industrial base and its uh, industrial capacity and so on um, but to do it through the public sector government controlled uh, production and uh, uh, value chains and so on um that's in the first let's say 25 30 years of uh, of our economic uh, planning process 1991 onwards well to some extent even before that but especially 1991 onwards when we formally change a lot of our economic laws and policies to to uh, integrate into the global economy uh, and uh, not surprisingly with uh, IMF and world bank uh, twisting our arms to do that um we then begin a process in which the private sector enters in a very big way um and by then of course uh, a little bit of the indian private sector is also quite strong um but also significant amount of entry of the foreign of multinational corporations from outside india um so the combination of of uh, of a government that is willing to basically go the same route as the west has done in terms of development but then opening it up in terms of profit making corporation so that is no longer even on paper socialist even you know it it becomes very explicitly a, a capitalist uh, economy um what we see then is that you've got this uh, class of elites which is in government but also in the private corporations and then you have a third element which is very important for india which is the caste system right so that's unique to us 
Now, the, the Indian caste system is centuries old. Uh, but what is very interesting is that whereas in theory, let's say a capitalist system should have been open to all castes to be able to benefit from it. You know, anybody could be a CEO of a corporation in theory. Again, mm. you actually see that it's, it's a, it is, there's a very high domination of the so-called upper caste, the dominant castes in decision-making circles or in as CEOs of corporations, etc. And again, mostly men. So you also then bring in the whole element of patriarchy into this. Um, I'm speaking a bit simplistically. Of course, it's more nuanced, but broadly, this is a picture that's emerging. So this elite in, in India, the decision-making elite, is, which is also then uh, the caste elite, which is also then the class elite, the economic elite, um, there is a kind of a merging that is taking place of three or four different kinds of domination right uh, that is taking place especially in the last couple of decades two three decades in india and this is why we see that now i think the latest figures i mean i can send you exact figures later but i think is that about five percent of the richest indians have more than 75 percent of its wealth um so it's a huge gap right uh, i think it's probably still better than the than united states which is one percent and 99 percent. so i'm told but here also it's uh and it's it's increasing this gap is between the rich and the poor is actually increasing now these elites are the ones who are taking decisions and they're hand in glove in many different ways there is the revolving door thing um which is Typically, uh, you know, somebody from government might join a corporation and, you know, corporations have easy access to uh, to uh, the polit political, co the corridors of political decision making, uh, etc. The, the, I guess the most dramatic example of that, what we're seeing right now is the controversy that everybody in the world is hearing about our uh, uh, Adani uh, group of uh, companies. So Gautam Adani, who at one point, I think two years back, became the third richest man in the world. Uh, there was a meteoric rise from a very small, relatively small businessman to one of the richest uh, businessmen in the world, all under our Prime Minister Modi. Earlier, when he was Chief Minister of the State of Gujarat, and then as, as he became Prime Minister. So there's no coincidence there. There was a very clear uh, you know, uh, relationship uh, there. And... Time and again, uh, journalists and, and activists have unearthed the ways in which Mr. Adani would get permission to make a coal mine here or a, a port somewhere else or an airport somewhere else, bypassing a lot of the laws that actually otherwise should have applied, ecological laws, labor laws, uh, etc. Um, and you find, uh, this is just one example, but there are many others, where there is this very, uh, sometimes very open, sometimes closed uh, collusion between powerful politicians and powerful corporate uh, businessmen, um, and again, mostly mm -hmm. men. So uh, it's it, the only thing is that it's it's kind of it's pr probably been there for a long time, but it's much more blatant now, much more big, much bigger, and much more greater possibility of uh, changing uh, the way decision making takes place. Also, what this government has done, just to add one last point here, is that it started a few years back something called the electoral bonds which means that corporations could actually pay into the coffers of political parties. Um, and this is how the BJP, a ruling party, has become one of the world's richest uh, political parties. Because a lot of corporate money is actually flowing into the party through this these political bonds, which are legitimate by law. Um, and uh, so then there's obviously, you know, policies and the way decisions get taken are benefiting those corporations back and those corporations are then paying into the coffers of the party. 
so it's a very blatant case yeah. of crony capitalism one can call it Mm, crony capitalism that it's exactly it and i mean we should all really just drop the crony all capitalism is crony really (laughs) there is no such thing as the free market right okay um what is can we you said that india uh, was also becoming imperial obviously in the in the west we don't get a lot of stories about what else is happening um in the world could you speak to that yeah, I think if I think there's two ways. I mean, I, I have written about how colonized the colonized have also become colonizers. So, uh, and this is of course much more true for China than for India. And China is a much bigger entity in the world now than India is. But nevertheless, even with India, what's happening? There are two kinds of things happening. One, uh, Indian corporations with uh, very clear help from the government are taking over lands in, say, Ethiopia. Right uh, now, these are commons. Uh, which are depended on by pastoralists or by farmers, but they're being taken over with the help of the Ethiopian government for the production of cash crops, which are then exported to Europe, things like flowers and so on. Um, Who are the beneficiaries? Mm -hmm. The corporations, obviously, maybe consumers in Europe, but the losers are those pastoralists or farmers and the wildlife that that used to be on that land or used to depend on that land. Um, Now, uh, or, for instance, Indian corporations now, which have the, the might, the power to be able to go to other countries and do mining. Uh, like in Latin America, there are some Indian corporations doing uh, extractive, extractive industry there. Uh, or uh, the power of India to import uh, palm oil. I mean, you mentioned Malaysia, right? So Southeast Asia, one of the biggest destroyers mm-hmm. is palm oil. And India has been importing palm oil in a big way. But the second way in which this, to my mind, sub-imperialism happens or sub-colonization is by the elites in India colonizing lands and people's territories within the country itself in the name of development and in the name of national good. Um, So the same palm oil story is interesting because now what India is saying is that we need to become self-reliant with palm oil. We cannot depend on importing all the time from Southeast Asia. It's expensive, etc. So they are beginning to take over forests and lands in some in those parts of India where they can take it over. And again, these are not empty lands. These are lands that are depended on by indigenous peoples or other communities, right? Or yeah. by wildlife. So in that sense, there is both an external yeah. uh, colonization and an internal one. Um, more or less similar kind of pattern to the, the classical forms of colonization that we've seen, except it's the same country doing it. Yeah, definitely. And that is what we see um, all over the, well, all over the world, but especially now all over the global south. There's no more land really to be colonized um, in the global north, um, but certainly all over the global south. Exactly the same with the Malaysian elites just sort of coming in and taking lands away from indigenous peoples um, and allegedly getting rid of indigenous peoples um, if too much fuss was kicked up. Um, We've got an extraordinary system in Malaysia whereby there are um five royal families or seven um and they are all allowed as well to extract wealth from the land and bypass the exactly in the same way bypass the existing uh political laws and ecological laws and um free prior informed consent laws that are a, a, a bid to protect indigenous peoples from this kind of um behavior but if it's happening within your own <laughs> walls what can you do? Um, it's a really, really sad state of mm. affairs. So what is the, 
what do you think India's place is going to be on the on the world stage in the next 10 years um, as the climate crisis continues to decimate more of the world and as political leaders wake up to the necessity of at least being seen to act? Um, where do you think India will stand and where is it based in terms of its transition? We hear a lot about how China is leading the energy transition. Um, but yeah, how will India cope? Well, I mean, 10 years is a very short period, but what I see in the next 10 years is primarily signs of uh, despair, but also some signs of hope. So when you say India, uh, let's take the mm -hmm. Indian government. Okay, Now, the Indian government is positioning itself to be a climate leader in the last few years, especially if you see the last two uh, conferences of parties, for instance. Um, and it does have a very ambitious program for renewable energy. Um, claiming that by think, 2030, 50% of its energy will be renewable or clean. Uh, the definition of clean is a bit problematic, but anyway, saying that. And um, by 2070, will be net zero in terms of carbon. Um, 2070. Yeah, it's the least uh, ambitious target amongst most countries. I, mean, I think China is 2060, Europe is 2050, whatever. So for some reason, Mr. Modi thought 2070. Uh, we're nowhere on track even for that, but anyway, that's those are the those are the targets. Now, now the problems with this are the uh, uh, these um, uh, this kind of uh, locating itself as one of the climate leaders is the following. Uh, number one, even as uh, solar and wind gets a huge amount of push from this government, and there is definitely much more investment going into this, both governmental and corporate, uh, private. Um, we are also continuing to expand coal mining. So it's not as if fossil fuel production is going down or even stable. It actually is going to continue going up, at least in the near future. Uh, and in fact, coal mines are being extended into some of the most uh, uh, some of the most valuable forests and indigenous lands, Adivasi lands, as we call them in, in the country. Um, so that's one huge part of the problem. The second part of the problem is that we are positioning ourselves as renewable energy uh, leaders, but then most of the push is towards mega projects, mega solar, mega wind projects, which have their own very serious problems in terms of, again, taking land, uh, ecological problems, uh, social displacement, etc. Um, whereas, in fact, what a lot of movements have been pushing for is that we need a much bigger thrust on uh, decentralized renewable energy, where which communities can also control and which can actually directly benefit people on the ground rather than these mega projects, which are mostly run by private corporations or government uh, corporations. Uh, so that's the second uh, big problem. The third one is that um, what comes under the definition of renewable slash clean is problematic. It includes large hydroelectricity, which has huge problems, as we know, for decades we've seen experience with that, and nuclear. In fact, uh, there is a plan for at least another dozen nuclear plants in the country, already cleared by the by the cab central cabinet of ministers. So um, this is the third kind of problem. And the fourth one is that there is absolutely no discussion on energy uh, demand control. So we know that, right? Uh, anywhere uh, that you look at, if the demand for electricity uh, Forget other, other forms of energy. Right now, I'm just talking about electricity. The demand for electricity keeps going higher and higher and higher. Nothing is renewable. You cannot have, again, the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a finite planet. 
so whether it's solar or wind even if you do away with all the coal it is not renewable it is not sustainable if uh, our demand keeps going up so the question of how much demand there should be and here especially the question of luxury demand demand by the elite by the rich people like me is much much higher than what actually should be a legitimate uh, how much we should legitimately uh, have uh, and again because of that this there is no talk about um, radical redistribution of energy and again this take electricity that those who already have too much take away from them and make that available to those who don't have enough rather than creating new and new plants and making newer and newer uh, capacity why not actually do this redistribution also so then you would not need that much more new capacity right so these are four or five problems with uh, with how india is positioning itself in terms of climate now, i'm just talking about electricity here there are of course other elements to this uh, one other very big component uh, of this is uh, uh, climate uh, adaptability now india in its latest budget uh, announced in february in 2023 um in the budget speech and what is called the economic survey that comes just a few days before that there was a lot of talk about climate resilience uh, the climate crisis how india needs to be uh, needs to move towards climate friendliness etc but if you look at the budget itself um there's virtually nothing on climate adaptation and this is despite growing evidence that already tens of millions of people are in in india are facing the climate crisis it's not coming in the future it's already here uh heat stress uh growing levels of sea uh, sea level rise uh drought somewhere flood somewhere else cloud bursts etc etc or everything that's happening uh which has been predicted with climate change for a long time it's happening already but nothing absolutely nothing for uh, helping these communities to adapt to these very serious consequences um so anyway so these are some of the problems what would india be doing in the next 10 years is to continue projecting itself in terms of being a climate leader uh maybe entering into more like mr modi and uh, the french president entered into this global solar alliance i think it's called at uh, you know four or five years back uh so you enter into those sorts of things which make you look like you're one of those climate champions but actually within the country these are the very problematic things that uh, that are happening so i don't see that changing very much in the next 10 years what i do see in terms of signs of hope is there are some elements within the government and some state governments within the country not the national but state governments that are actually trying to think much more radically and progressively with regard to things like climate and also that there is a growing people's movement i think in india the biggest mm-hmm. sign of hope ever which has been there for the last few hundred years has been civil society people's movements on the ground movements of resistance movements of alternatives etc still very weak compared to the dominant system but growing and i think that's where over the next 10 years we can see some elements of uh, of hope it sounds like um the plan that modi's government has come up with is like a sort of copy and paste job I'm um, from generic ideas about what a clean energy future or a renewable future will look like with very little understanding of what nationally needs to be done for Indians in India which is why as you say there's been nothing in the recent budget on climate adaptability um and yet there's a people's movement growing can you speak to 
how that's forming, what their demands are, how it's organized? So there's two kinds of movements that we've actually been focusing on a lot. Um, one is resistance. Um, so where these projects, whether it's fossil fuel projects or it's uh, so-called renewable energy projects or it's industrial projects or ports or whatever uh, in the name of development are coming up, um, there have been and continue to be strong people's movements of resistance on the ground saying we don't want this here. Uh, and uh, some sometimes successfully, sometimes not. The state, of course, uh, um, retaliates sometimes very brutally against such movements. Sometimes they try and bribe them. So there are different ways in which the state deals with them. Uh, and uh, so, you know, sometimes they break up and are, are simply not strong enough to take on the state or the corporations. Sometimes they are and manage to do stop mining or dams or other such things, right? So that so resistance is one. I think the good thing that's happening is that more and more these resistance movements are also joining hands, so that it's no longer just saying that we don't want this project in my in our backyard. It's not that so-called NIMBY approach, but more and more people, the movements are also articulating. Yeah, we don't want this in our backyard, but we don't want it in anybody's backyard. We don't want a coal mining anywhere in the country, right? We don't want uh, X, Y, Z. So in that sense, being able to articulate a larger vision of why we are opposing this form of development and economic growth is uh, is also uh, that articulation is, is getting stronger across the country. So that's uh, one thing. The second kind of, kind of uh, people's response is saying, okay, if you're saying no to this, this is what we're saying yes to. That yes, we have energy needs. Yes, we have needs for food. Yes, we have needs for housing. We have needs for water, etc. Uh, we have education needs. We have health needs. These are all things we need or want. We also have aspirations to, uh, you know, reach a certain stage of life. But instead of doing it in the way that your dominant system has been telling us, we will do it in a very different way. And this is the arena of what we call constructive alternatives. And uh, here in a process that we started in 2014 called the Vikalp Sangam or the uh, Confluence of Alternatives, we've documented almost now 2,000 stories of this kind of constructive alternatives on the ground across this whole range of human you know, themes and endeavor. Um, and this is a tip of the iceberg. There are probably thousands more out there which are not even documented or which we don't know about. Uh, the problem is the following. One, a lot of resistance movements are not necessarily also thinking of constructive alternatives. So they are able to resist, but then they often fall into the trap of getting into something else which could also be destructive because they haven't thought through, okay, I don't want this mining project here, but then we haven't thought through how would livelihoods be generated without that. And so then some people from the community say, well, you know, if nothing else is happening, we might as well accept the mining project or the industry, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one kind of problem. The second is um, a lot of these movements are not necessarily well networked. They're scattered, they're fragmented. Some of them are very small. They're easy to break um, or they don't make a dent in the macro picture. So we really need and are now increasingly having national level platforms uh, where uh, these sorts of movements are able to collaborate with each other, talk to each other support each other in terms of crises, become more of a critical mass for uh, exposing regressive policies, for demanding progressive policies, um, and spreading uh, grounded initiatives much bigger, much more than what they already are. So these are, uh, we think, the kinds of signs of hope that, uh, uh, and, and sorry, and also then collectively 
imagining a different India. Now, so what if if we have patriarchy and casteism and state domination and capitalism and so on? What is the India that we want, which doesn't have all of these, but is still able to run the economy, has greater gender equality, is ecologically resilient, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. What kind of imagination would uh, we want, and then what are the pathways of getting there? So all of this is part of the churning that's taking place uh, in our networks. Oh, amazing. And can you share some visions that are coming up? Sure. So, I mean, for instance, if you take, uh, let's take food. Now, in India, the dominant uh, paradigm has been the so-called Green Revolution, which is that in order to grow food for 1.2 billion people or now 1.4 billion people, I think we just took over, we just crossed it, uh, China or will soon. You did. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, we need to have artificial fertilizers and pesticides and hybrid seeds and genetically modified seeds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's been the sort of dominant vision for ever since the 1960s. Uh, but uh, more and more movements on the ground, farmers' movements, uh, and especially uh, remarkably small-scale women farmers, uh, who have been traditionally and in modern times disprivileged and marginalized in very bad ways also the so-called outcasts of society, um, they have shown the possibilities of generating enough food, not just for themselves, their own families, but also to be able to sell some in the market with totally organic methods, local seeds, local knowledge, um, through collective action and work, not individualization and privatization, but through sharing the seeds, sharing the knowledge, sharing agricultural operations, etc. Uh, and uh, respecting the earth and respecting the seeds, not thinking of them as commodities, which is what the market, uh, the capitalist market system does. So uh, this is just one example from South India that I'm giving you, but there are many, many others like that in India, which are showing that there is an alternative pathway of agricultural well-being, which is able to provide food and high quality, clean, uh, healthy food to people without the sorts of uh, you know inputs and problems that the currently dominant system gives. We have the same thing happening mm. with, say, water, that if there is a need for water for irrigation, for drinking, etc., instead of making a big dam in one place and then transporting the water a thousand kilometers to that place where you need it, you actually do proper water harvesting, even in low rainfall areas, in a way that all the water is, is trapped, it is managed, it is used very uh, sparingly, it is not wasted. So you build also the local political decision-making systems and management systems that are able to make sure that water is not wasted, it's properly used, etc. So, um, and we've have, we have hundreds of villages in Western India, which is very uh, dry, very low rainfall, which have shown water self-sufficiency through these kinds of things, don't need any big dam anywhere else. Um, anyway, these are just two, two sectors I'm telling you about, but there are similar stories across uh, all the sectors. And building on this, what we're saying is that what we need are systems um, across the country, across the globe, actually, of this kind of political and economic localization, where people are able to take control over their ecosystems, their natural resources, their knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, their technologies, also invite knowledge and technologies from outside if they think that what they have is not enough but in, on their own terms, right? not being dominated from outside. And so the political decision-making and the economic decision-making is at that local level. 
it is not with private corporations, nor is it actually even with the nation state. Uh, that is the kind of what we call radical ecological democracy, or here in India, we call it eco-swaraj. Swaraj means self-rule, uh, very bad English translation, but basically self-rule. It's a form of democracy, but a very deep form of democracy where uh, people claim autonomy as individuals, as communities, as collectives. But that autonomy is goes hand in hand with responsibility, which means that I or my community will do what we want. We will establish our freedom. We will be autonomous, but not at the cost of somebody else's well-being and autonomy. This is very, very important. So democracy says go and do elections, you know, and then hopefully the political party that you vote will do the right thing for you. What these people are saying is that no power lies with us, not with those who we elect. Mm -hmm. People who we elect, we will make accountable. But for the decisions that affect our lives, we will be at the core of that decision making. But we will also be responsible to make sure that it doesn't adversely affect the next village or somebody 500 kilometers away uh, just because our consumption patterns are uh, you know, like that. So, uh, so we call that eco-swaraj because then there's also a sense of responsibility towards not just other human beings, but also towards other species and the rest of the the rest of nature. So, um, or also radical ecological democracy is, is actually that. Uh, I can send you uh, later if you want. We have something called the flower of transformation, where the political, ecological, social, cultural, economic spheres of life intersect in all kinds of messy ways. Uh, but it is at those intersections that people are taking those kinds of decisions of autonomy, localization, respect with the, to the earth, etc., um, that uh, are providing us the glimpses of what uh, a just, sustainable future could look like. I would be delighted to read it. Thank you so much. And what a vision. And uh, this is what I'm hearing from all over the world. Like the answer has to be locally embedded people in their land that have been allowed the autonomy to make decisions for themselves that are equally part of a decentralized network mm -hmm. of communities that are all working as well with a, a greater vision in mind. Tell me, how is it climate change talked about in India? Um, are people aware of how bad it is getting in a way that, you know, the vast majority in the global north are not? Um, and are they aware of the driving problem, which is economic growth and, you know, for a huge part of it, Western appetite? Uh, more and more so, but I, I think that even now the um, the awareness of climate change in the explicit form of climate change is still actually quite low. There is an awareness that things are changing drastically. There's an awareness that climate is changing. Okay, so you go anywhere virtually and speak to farmers, you speak to pastoralists, you speak to fishing communities. They're saying that something drastic has happened, is happening. Uh, the rain is not coming when it's supposed to. There's much less snow than there should be. Uh, crops are not growing when they're supposed to be growing. Trees are flowering three months in advance of when they should be flowering. So those sorts of that is very clear to those who are most grounded because they are facing it every day, right? Uh, but for them to then be able to link that to the global processes of what we are calling the climate change or the climate crisis is not so easy because that's not the sort of knowledge that has come to them. Now it's increasing a lot more. And of course, with social media and a lot of organizations being involved, uh, uh, people are, are able to take this kind of information or knowledge to the ground so they can make those connections. But... In terms of the reasons of why this is happening, it's very interesting. 
some people who have these sorts of national or global connections, some communities are able to make that link and say, yeah, it's because of industrialization uh, that or economic growth that this is happening. And, and it is, you know, uh, the West that has created the problem. So some, yeah. Others will articulate it very differently. And this is very interesting. For instance, up in Ladakh, which is the uh, northernmost territory of India adjoining Tibet, um, high altitude, very high altitude, uh, cold desert area. Uh, we spoke to a number of elders there, asking them why they think there's so much less snow or why uh, glaciers are melting. And they were saying that through the kind of uh, road digging that we are doing, these JCBs that are coming and churning up the earth, the pollution that we see in our in uh, in our capital city now, the spirits of the land and the water are completely disturbed. Uh, and because they're disturbed, they are going to hit back. And what we're seeing actually is the spirit of the earth that's hitting back at us. Now, you know, as a so-called rational person, one may laugh at this, but to my mind, this is also a very powerful form of articulation uh, because it embeds within itself a certain deep respect of the earth and of water and of, you know, in, mm -hmm. the, in the form of spirits that are living there. Uh, and therefore, seeing modern development processes as being something that's fundamentally wrong. Um, anyway, so what I think is happening now in more and more of these communities is that people like us are also saying there's also this so-called scientific element. You have your own cultural, spiritual arguments. Maybe we put the two together so that communities can be much better prepared in terms of understanding and then responding to these uh, to these crises. So that I think is happening more and more, but we still have a huge way to go for people to really be able to understand uh, the roots of the crisis and then what we can do about it. Uh, but also, sorry, mm -hmm. the second element to this is that most Please. people who are actually thinking of these wonderful alternative, uh, uh, you know, solutions like the examples I gave you, are not doing it as a response to the climate crisis. Uh, this, this is a mistake mm -hmm. we should not make because they're doing it because it's a response to water scarcity or to not having adequate food or to other kinds of ecological and livelihoods crises, right? Uh, or political crises. Or they're doing it because they want identity. They want to show that they, they assert their own culture and their own identity, right? Um, it's only very recently that some of them have also brought in the climate narrative into what they're doing. So the same women farmers I was telling you about, the so-called Dalit, so-called outcast women farmers, it's only in the last few years that they've said that whatever we've been doing in these last 30 years of revolutionizing our agriculture and moving towards uh, food sovereignty is also climate friendly. But this is actually the solution to climate. And they're absolutely right uh, in saying that. But that's a very recent articulation that's uh, coming into these moments. Hmm. Well, I think it's, it's an interesting point to make, though, because it sort of concretizes the fact that the climate crisis is sort of shorthand, essentially. Um, for the confluence of the energy crisis, the water crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the economic crisis, political crisis, and the ecological crisis. Um, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not sure of the history of it, we landed on climate crisis. Um, and it is hitting people in, already around the world. And of course, it's going to be felt in not being able to provide food for one's family because the soil has changed or a village being uh, washed away because of topsoil erosion. Um, or water scarcity and all of these things that, that you speak of so beautifully. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, you're right about that. But I think why it's important for us to articulate it in the way you just did 
is so that it doesn't get reduced to just carbon which is a tendency right for the world yeah. okay climate carbon so you do net zero carbon yeah. and everything is solved <laughs> so we need to be able to yeah. continuously uh, articulate the fact that it is a multifaceted crisis it is biodiversity it is pollution it is xyz and it is the politics of it and it is the economics of it it's not just about capturing carbon somewhere or you know doing net zero so this is very very important because otherwise we get reduced it's such a reductionist approach otherwise to to the climate crisis just saying everything is carbon so yeah i completely agree it is quite it's quite a dangerous um perspective as well because it sort of create it creates a very simple accounting book where we can count how many emissions are going out and then pretend to discount ones that we're apparently taking back mm -hmm. um and as you say it'll, it'll it implies that if net zero can be reached, which is totally bonkers, then we have solved the problem. It's just it's just a playbook for business to continue as usual, really, in the hope that we'll find a way uh, for industry to continue its own self-perpetuation um, and does nothing. Really, it, I think it quite deliberately simplifies the problem because the complexity of this problem is such that everything is gonna have to change, really. Yeah, absolutely. And we see the same thing happening with the biodiversity discussions. You know, the Conference of Parties of the Biodiversity Convention recently. You know, you come up with uh, things like uh, nature-based solutions or no net loss. So it's okay to lose yeah. biodiversity somewhere else if yeah. you're recreating it in some magical form somewhere else. So, I mean, these are all very seriously problematic. The yeah. book that we did, I don't know if you've seen our book, Turiverse. Um, this um, no, not yet. It came out in 2019. It's called Pluriverse, a post-development dictionary. I can send you the link to it. Um, it has it has three sections. And one of the sections, is, I mean, most of it is actually radical alternative, 90 essays. But there's also about 15 essays on what we call false solutions or, or uh, solutions within the system. Uh, and uh, so the net zero, this climate, uh, climate smart agriculture, there's uh, smart cities. Etc. So even sustainable development, actually, to some extent. So we kind of critique these uh, from exactly this point of view that they don't fundamentally challenge the system, and in many cases are just ways by which profit making will continue or even increase in the name of the of the environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the name of solving the problem as well, right? That's what we're seeing with the the carbon market or the biodiversity market offsetting is just a way of not only continuing but now exploiting the very nature of the crisis in order to turn another profit Absolutely. it's Absolutely. astonishing i think this is also Please. one reason why we feel that global connections are so important for us so we're doing all of this in india but mm -hmm. unless we are also able to connect with uh, movements across the globe uh, both resistance and constructive alternatives uh, we often miss out on these, uh, you know, these larger or, or complex nuances of, of things we're missing out. So, for instance, the whole carbon trade, which is mostly coming from the West and it's coming in a big way. We need to be able to work with groups in the West also who are critiquing it, who are, you know, the counter trends to it to say, OK, to be able to expose it there as we try and expose it here. And this is also why we started this uh, global tapestry of alternatives in 2019 that platforms like Vikalp Sangam in India and Kriyanza Mutwa in Mexico and Colombia and many others around the world, the commons movement, the transition movements, etc., are able to get together on a common platform to share, collaborate, learn from each other and make more of a critical mass for advocacy and uh, the, the macro shifts and changes that we want. So I just wanted to also mm -hmm. put that in there so that, uh, you know, it's not just a national picture, but 
like the, the global connections that are so very crucial for us. Yeah, absolutely. I utterly agree with you. Um, I think it's one of the, again, fallacies of the moment of time that we live in, that we have a globalized financial system and yet nation states, as if any of those nation states will have the power to sort of bridle um, global corporations, international corporations, or, you know, global when money can move across borders easier than people can, it's just madness. And so a decentralized network of communities all working together to share knowledge about what to do, what is happening and how to do it, I think is, um, it, so, it sort of seems to me the next natural, I, it's the wrong word to use, I know, but the next natural evolution of, of global politics, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have to do that. But we also have Ashish. to do it a bit differently from how the conventional left has done it. Because that's been like this, you know, you form, uh, you form these internationalist kind of things, which are often very uh, hierarchical, top down and somewhat sort of uh, uh, dogmatized uh, that you need to actually create horizontal linkages uh, of movements uh, where the individual identities and uniqueness of every movement is actually recognized. It doesn't get submerged. And this is why we've always using the word pluriverse rather than universe to say that there is, there are multiple, or what the Zapatista say, right? There are many worlds uh, fitting into a world um, to recognize that diversity and build uh, relationships of equality and respect across the globe based on that recognition rather than, you know, this kind of top-down hierarchical uh, we don't want a world government, let's say. We want to replace the United Nations, but not with a world government. Yeah. We need to have a people's assembly yeah. process going from the ground to the global level and respecting uh, the grounded level uh, you know, institutions that uh, people are coming up with. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Ashish, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Let me give you a name of a person I recently met uh, and have admired his work for a long time. Uh, Vishwas Sadkar, he's uh, South African. Um, he's based in the University of uh, Wits in Johannesburg. And he, along with many uh, trade unions and environmental groups and feminist groups and so on, have been working on what's called the South African Climate Justice Charter. Uh, it's a fantastic document and a great. great process that they've been doing over the many. It's struggling a little bit right now because the politics of South Africa are just so crazily toxic. But uh, but the process they used and what they came up with as uh, also part of the, I mean, they have a Food Sovereignty Alliance and then they have this global climate justice, uh, sorry, South African Climate Justice Charter. I can put you in touch with him. I think he'd be a great person to bring on to the show. That would be wonderful. Ashish, thank you so Thanks much. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.